The following episode of the 9pm edict contains politics, a brain implant, strong language, and a pig. Two pigs actually. Friday, the 4th of September 2020. In this episode, Australian author and reprobate John Birmingham joins me to talk about pea and ham soup and the only way Trump can stir up his base. Ooh, matron. Creating this mythology of existential threat. We hear JB's answer to this question. Can the government stop Facebook from blocking news content from its Australian viewers? And we hear some of his thoughts about journalism and political grifters. One of the things that annoys me about journalists when they they raise these these grifters and chances to prominence is that if they just did their fucking job, it would be so easy to reduce them to what, you know, they are in essence, which is grifters and chances. Hello, I'm Still Garyan. Welcome to the 9pm End of Civilization with John Birmingham. The podcast starts uh, more seriously than it ends. I want to say that as we record this on uh, Wednesday, the 2nd of September, it'll probably be out on Friday, for me it's day like 154 of the quarantine. So it's like 24 weeks and it's approaching six months. But I wanted to put this is a, a news clip from yesterday. Police have apprehended a man that uh, has come from Victoria uh, who was uh, known to be positive. This is great work from the police that have been able to apprehend this man who was trying to get into Queensland illegally. This goes to show how strong our border measures are and the fact that they are working. Strong border measures, Mm. thanks to the police, Mm. fines for travelling. And and look, you're in Queensland um, where the police are always been historically such lovely people but wherever you are in in the country this this is a lockdown and what do you observe of this balance between we're good citizens trying to do the right thing or they're doing the wrong thing call the cops look to be honest because i'm in brisbane which is largely plague free uh i don't see much of it there's, you know, we've had uh, we've had a couple of you Mexican zombies trying to uh, sneak over the the Rio Grande the the last couple of <laughs> weeks, uh, and and that has involved sending a couple of thousand rosses to the border to to make sure you can't get in. But that means they're not really um, they're not really hassling the rest of us. Having said that, uh, looking at what's happening down south and 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 in Melbourne, um, I I know that. Um, you know, Osman Faruqi has this uh, uh, this theory that you know Australia is is the most <laughs> you know sort of um, you know straight up sort of you know police fascist state as as far as using um, you know cops and and legal instruments to to suppress the virus. He said, like out of all of the uh, you know the sort of you know top 
25 liberal democracies in the world. For some reason, we are just absolutely mad for for using cops. There's probably we love it, and the media pushes that too, right? You know, oh, yeah. the media pushes that too. You see any of the news stories? And look at all those people at the beach using uh, oh, yeah. a, I mean, that's, you know, uh, half uh, yeah, a meter telephoto this, lens. Yeah, yeah, and this is like a this is a particular issue of yours, I know, because I've seen you tweeting about it. But it is, um, it's it, there is a. You know, there was it Men in Clark, wasn't it, who had that that theory that um, uh, the, the the people who ran, you know, the early convict colonies, they were all punishers and straighteners, and and I think that the sort of the soul of the punishers and straighteners is, as you know, sort of drifted in its ghostly way into the you know the the, the shuddering, rambling corpse of what's left of Australia's media. They do love to knock people out. They always have, but. As you know, their own business model has been progressively eaten by Google and Facebook. They really don't have much left in, you know, the way of making a quid. So, you know, that 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 one on the week was it the weekend where they used the the, the long lens down the beach so oh, that they squash everybody up. Been doing it, yeah, yeah. It's just, and the thing is, they get caught so quickly now that people just even you know. Mug punters like me, I, I'm, I'm not a photographer. I don't really know how it works. Um, but normal punters now, within what half a day of something like that ending up on the front page of the Terror or the Hun or you know whatever fail facts, you know form a broadsheet it it ends up on. Uh, most people are going to be aware that it's a scam. So I, I don't know why they do it. Are they though? Are they, though? I don't know. Look, here's the thing. This is from uh, Essentials polling um, last week, August 25th. 60% of Australians reckon that any person diagnosed with COVID-19 must wear a tracking blade bracelet <laughs> to ensure they don't leave. 60%. Yeah. And 52% says anyone diagnosed must live in a quarantine dedicated facility rather than at home. Yeah. I, the, the thing I is <sighs> that there should be like an asterisk on those figures. It should be, you know, 60% of people believe, you know, if you've got the Rona, you should wear the tracking bracelet. Open brackets, except for me. I'm not wearing that bracelet. <laughs> Close brackets. It's, it's always um, someone else is, is yeah. the bad person, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's like um, there, there was a, a sort of, you know, a, a delicious, shameful enjoyment to be had from all of the um, footloose Australians coming home and getting tipped into quarantine hotels at the, the start of the plague and and all, Luxury. you know, complaining loudly about, you know, the um, the way they were being treated. I just thought, you know, where, where were you when we were locking people up in the – the gulag's probably calling for it, mate. Yeah, it's a bit of a double standard. We certainly saw that with those uh, two young women who admittedly oh my God, uh, yeah. did very stupid things coming back to Queensland and and went amok. But, like, the kind of bile that was yeah, directed I- towards them... I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that they were of Asian appearance. Yeah, no, like sexism, racism, and a little bit of class warfare thrown in there for spice as well yeah. is what was going on there. Like there's been um, – this, they were up to all sorts of, you know, what looked like vaguely criminal shenanigans 
on their um, <laughs> you know, their big adventure down south, and you know, um, uh, they were they conducting and, lucrative business. Yeah, I think they got grabbed yeah. up, and you know, good on uh, the coppers for doing that. But that really, it's it's a kind of thing that if it was going to be reported, it should really be getting you know, in in old fashioned terms, you know, maybe. One column inch on page thirteen from the police blotter. Yeah. It, it really it wasn't worth the sort of multi day um, splash that it got. But again, this goes back to you know these guys don't have a business model anymore. Certainly not like the one they used to. Like you know they they never really sold news. They they sold advertising that was you know, mm. wrapped up in news. They can't sell advertising anymore because Facebook and Google took it all. So, you know, instead they've got to sell something else and, you know, fear and loathing. Yeah, look, I'm I'm going to jump ahead now because we were going to talk about that later. But since we're on the topic, uh, Pat Cavalis asked uh, this particular question only today. Can the government stop Facebook from blocking news content from its Australian viewers? So I don't, I don't actually understand the the technical aspect of, of what they're talking here. So when um, when they say running links, are they recreating the entire content? Are they are they basically doing a Daily Mail? Are they scraping content from you know? the Oz, the Herald or whatever, and putting it within their platform in its entirety? Or are they just talking about Not links back all. to those sites? It is purely you or me or any other Facebook user, not that I'm a Facebook user, but anyone posting, hey, John, did you see this story about the footy? Mm. There's a link to the story. So those links would not be a thing. All right. See, I don't really understand that. At all, because that sh- that's directing traffic back to their websites, which, you know, it's not generating much income because, you know, there's not a lot of income to be had from traffic. But um, I don't – it's not like they're consuming the entirety of the content on, f- say, Facebook or, or Google, is it? They're, they're, they're no, they're not copying they're- and pasting the stories. But here's the thing. I um, actually spoke about this on uh, Wednesday morning on Radio 5AA in Adelaide. So I have all these numbers at my fingertips. Um, now, Facebook is saying, look, we had in the first five months of this year 3.2 billion click-throughs to news sites in mm. Australia. And you think, wow, that's a lot. But if you do the numbers, it's one click per Facebook user per day. Yeah. And it's an incredibly small amount of the overall clickiness that happens on Facebook. Um, so Facebook said, eh, whatever, we won't run them. And there's this idea that, yeah, Facebook feeds all this stuff through to the news sites. Not really. It's just that one click per person a day. And even if people post a lot of stuff, you would know – uh, mm. on comments on your own stories online, how many people actually read the story before commenting <laughs> or clicking? Yeah. And uh, the bre- one of the breakfast presenters uh, on 5AA in Adelaide is David Penbethy, who used to be editor oh, yeah. of news.com.au, yeah. and he you know, volunteered the figure that, yeah, you get maybe 5% of links are clicked on. And you have mm. to make it up with volume and, well, he didn't use the word link bait, but he, he was a master yeah. of the old link bait. He knows how to do tabloid. 
Uh, he was yeah, that's right. He was the editor of the Daily Telly for a while too. Yeah, no, he's he's an interesting uh, character, Penbo. So I, I had been planning to do a column on this in the next couple of weeks, which meant that I was you know going to have to do some reading on it. Unfortunately, but you, 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 you're doing a lot of my work for me now. I must admit <laughs> that I find it surprising that what they're trying to make them pay for is basically URLs back to their own sites. Like, I don't yeah. see why why they're losing out in that. And it, it actually, it, I, I remember I, I've sailed, saved a story somewhere. I haven't read it yet, but I saw somebody making a, a comment that the way that the government and is, is it the ACCC have framed yeah. this argument, it seems very obvious that they have bought the the storyline um, certainly from from News Corp, but also you know being pushed by by Fairfax. That uh, we say nine now, obviously. Oh yeah. Yeah, I find that very. I used to work. I used to work at nine before it was even less cool than it is now. And um, <laughs> I, I found. I, yeah. I must admit, I found the gear change from Fairfax into nine very, very difficult to to come at. But um, it's just it's weird, isn't it? Because I mean, there's you know, I I don't have I don't carry a, a torch for the the platforms. I I think there is you know real. Um, you know, real regis- legislative and, and regulatory action which should be taken against, certainly against Facebook, um, but also uh, against Google and, and to a lesser extent Twitter because, you know, Twitter's a bit naff. But um, they they are absolutely <laughs> complicit in the, you know, the spread of really, really dangerous um, uh Bullshit. Disinformation and yeah, weaponized yeah. bullshit. Basically, it's it's and it's it's difficult for us to to sort of come at it with the you know the intellectual framework that you might have used through you know most of the the last hundred and fifty two hundred years because the technology and the effects that it creates are they're just orders of of, of magnitude greater and, and qualitatively different from from what's gone before. Do they really get good sharing and good engagement from serious news links? No, they they get the best stuff from cat videos, uh, yeah. from uh, anti-vaxxer. It's right from videos. Q&A. And in fact, this is why, and this is this is the essay I'm I'm trying to work on this week is <clears throat> the role of QAnon. Sorry, of Facebook's decision about two or three years ago when it decided it was going to. <clears throat> downgrade the importance of you know hard news content from from legacy media and it was going to start preferencing and promoting more personal connections and particularly uh, connections made through through Facebook groups and that decision to to tweak their algorithm, in that way is why they now have somewhere between three and five million crazy fucking QAnon conspirators on their site in like tens of thousands of of different groups. It's depressing, isn't it? It it really is. <laughs> it's I've I've um, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of research on on the Q uh, the last week or so, and it's just uh, oh, I've been down the rabbit hole so much. Oh, it's just uh, it's, you know where we go, one we go, all buddy. It's fascinating, but yeah, 
it's it's the thing I find really really fascinating about um, the QAnon craziness is is the way that it's a kind of um, sort of 1950s blob-like meta-conspiracy, which just consumes all of the other conspiracies and and, and sort of, um, what is it that the Borg do? Assimilates them. So, you know, you, you, you know yes. you, you're a happy little anti-vaxxer or, you know, you, you've sort of wrapped your head in alfoil to keep the 5G out and and it, it you know, it doesn't matter because the QAnon guys are going to see you and they're just, they're going to spread their, like, you know, blobby loving protoplasm of craziness around you just incorporate you into a, a, a much larger, crazier conspiracy. There was a guy, did you know there was a guy who killed like a mafia underboss because he was into QAnon, not the mafia underboss, the dude was into QAnon. And, you know, he'd, he'd read on some crazy Reddit discussion board somewhere that, you know, this particular mafia boss was great friends with Hillary Clinton and they were getting together in the basement of the pizza place to, you know, enslave children. And this dude took it upon himself to, you know, drive it to New York, New Jersey or whatever, and he whacked a mafia boss. This is how crazy these people are. QAnon, of course, began probably in the United States. I want to talk about America for a bit, John, because back on back in July, 27th of July, to be exact, your newsletter, Alien Side Boob, quoted a big chunk from David Kilcullen, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the counterinsurgency analyst. Now, I did uh, a big chunk of this uh, two episodes ago, so regular listeners will be familiar. But just to remind people, uh, Kilcullen was looking at uh, what might happen uh, in December in America. So on the left, there is a fairly widespread fear that President Trump will lose the election but then refuse to step down mm-hmm. and that he may actually call in the military to um, stop himself from uh, having to leave. I actually think that's reasonably unlikely, Um, uh, but it's a very widespread fantasy on on the left. On the right, there is a fantasy that the left is going to rig the election, uh, that it's going to result in a uh, clean sweep, you know, um, House, Senate, President, many governorships, and that the left will then come after uh, in a physical, you know, genocidal sense, um, people on the right. Um, and that's equally, I think, overblown. overblown. Um, but if you think about it, right, the, the election has three possible outcomes. Trump wins, Trump loses, or it's unclear, like, you know, 2001 or 2000. 2000, if, 2001, yeah, got it. Yeah. If, Trump wins, if Trump wins, I think he steps down, but I think there'll be significant violence of a low-grade, you know, baseball bats and bricks, the sort of things we've seen the last few weeks. Um, uh, of, on, of the campaign? Of the campaign, but also in transition, right? Interregnum, so yeah. Okay. Sorry, what I say, if, if Trump loses, I think he steps down, but there will be some, some violence during the campaign. Um, secondly, um, you know, the right wing will not immediately respond, I don't think, but when they do, it'll be much more lethal than... Brick, bricks in the street, right? It'll be it'll be AR-15s um, in some groups, in some areas, I should say. 
if um, uh, if Trump wins, I don't think you're going to get triumphalist violence from the right. You'll get responsive, reactive violence from the left, but it'll be fairly low grade. If Trump loses, you'll get pretty triumphalist political behaviour on the on the left, and then after a delay, you'll get some kind of backlash on the right. Um, so I, you know, and if it's unclear, then I think it's just a very messy transition, and potentially that's where the the most dangerous environment is. And before I ask you for your thoughts on that, John, mm. uh, this was Kilcullen's summary in like 20 seconds. I think there's a 100% chance that we're going to see some acts of violence in November, right? Um, I think that, you know, you have to ask the question, at what level does violence or disruption um, start to threaten the fabric of US society and the US state and then, by extension, uh, the US role in the world? Now, John, that was, what, three, no, no, a month ago now. Mm, about that, a month, yeah. And, and I think uh, Kilcullen spoke a couple of weeks before that. How have your thoughts progressed in this month and a half? Yeah, I, I found myself in furious agreement with Dave through most of that. I actually must uh, thank you for, for giving me the heads up to um, to attend that session online. It was uh, it was fascinating. The... Um, you know, there's a few things I would have nitpicked about him, about his uh, his delivery at the time. I, I think he, um, I think he was a lot more worried about the militant left than is you know justified by the nature of the militant left in in the US. I, I there. There are he he did say there's something like 52, 53 left wing militia who yeah you know, it was um, in the fifties and it was more than two hundred on the right yeah that's right and it's um you know there are sort of uh, increasing numbers of you know radical militant left wing actors being sort of drawn into the weird sort of, you know, otherwise right-wing gun culture of the US. And I guess it makes a kind of sense because it's a, you know, it's it's a, a reactive um, process of arming themselves because, you know, you're seeing all of these other sort of, you know, weird right-wing amosexual crisis actors turning up at, uh, you know, otherwise peaceful demos. But I... I it was. I think, you know, Kilcullen was expecting this stuff to all kick off in November. I, I think it's kicked off already. Uh, I think we're there, and um, I, I think given the nature of the campaign and the, the, the sort of the incentive structures for the competing parties, you're going to see a lot more of it simply because the only way that Trump can win on like current polling and indications is to energize like you know 110 percent of his base and, and actually I'm, I'm serious when I say 110 percent it's not hyperbole he has to get a bunch of um, you know sort of white grievance voters who sat out 2016 to get off their asses and go to the polls for him next time. So he actually, he has to grow his, you know, base to use the, 
the American term, um, and he probably has to grow it to about 105, 110% of what it was in 2016 just to get within striking distance of Biden because the left, as we saw in 2018 in the midterms, is already like feverishly energized. And you also have because of, you know, the actions of a lot of never-Trump Republicans who've sort of finally got their shit together through organisations like, uh, you know, Republican Voters Against Trump, the Lincoln Project, uh, the guys at the Bulwark who do some fantastic work. Um, they've probably stripped away somewhere between about 8 and 12% of the sort of, you know, old country club Republican vote, the white college-educated people who were just there for the, you know, the... the the tax cuts and the, the deregulation. And so the only way that Trump wins is to, you know, basically whip up uh, the the demographic that put him in, in the last place. And the only way he can whip them up is by this, you know, creating this mythology of existential threat like, you know, not just a threat to, you know, your tax cuts, your judges, whatever, but, but an actual existential, cultural, racial threat. Um, and that's the kind of thing that actually, you know, gets people out in the street with their AR-15s or the shoddies or, or, or whatever. Uh, if I had to make a call about how I think it will go, uh, I mean, it's it's difficult because of COVID. That's, that's you know, that that's the thing that... that uh, makes everything impossible to predict, even in terms of turnout. Um, but I, I think what will happen is a lot of Democrats, like a lot of them, will end up voting by mail. A lot of Republicans, possibly most of them, will turn up to the polling booth to vote in person. And so on the day of the election, you know, while we're all sitting around at about, you know, lunchtime or whatever, watching it, come, it will look like... A disaster. <laughs> it will look like Trump <laughs> has, has romped it back in. And of course, you know, Fox will call it that way immediately. But, you know, the, the sort of the, the legacy broadcasters will, they'll be tempted to make that call as well. And, you know, you know, some people will be going, well, you know, you've got all of these postal votes to, to count. And if it was here, if it was our election, everybody, you know, Anthony Green would be going, no, I've got to wait for the poster votes. And everybody would go, yeah, of course you've got to wait for the poster votes. But that that entire process has has been uh, poisoned and, and, you know, sort of mythologically weaponized by Trump on purpose because I think what he wants to do is basically get to a point on the night of the election where he can go, look at these fantastic set of numbers, I'm the president again. And everyone's going, you know, the left are going, well, no, no, wait for the postal votes. And he's going, no, no, uh, I, I've been telling you for months, you know, those, those postal votes, they don't exist. They're all, you know, a bunch of Antifa Mexicans, in fact. And then he just sends in, you know, thousands and thousands of these weird, spooky federal agents you've been seeing in Portland that he sends them into, you know, Georgia and Arizona and he seizes the, you know, the boxes and just says, you know, Duterte style, uh, these are all fake ballots, burn them, and they're gone, and there it is. And uh, that is when I suspect you start to see 
not just an unraveling of the social contract in the US, but a violent disintegration. I'm actually very, you know, very, very dark and very bleak about the whole thing. On the other hand, um, you know, if it happens that it's close on election night or, you know, if Biden romps away with it, then there'll be, as Kilcullen said, there'll be some, you know, militia shenanigans, uh, there'll be some violence on the street. But if he's, if he's romped away with it, then the the machinery of the state will you know, it really will creak into action to deliver him to, ex, you know, to the podium on the 20th of January to, you know, put his hand on the Bible and, and, and whatever. If it's close or if on the night it looks like Trump's won, you know, it's – I wouldn't say you'd see a civil war because, you know, civil war in the US brings forth very, very uh, particular memories and, um, and imagery – and, and those conditions don't exist anymore. But you could see absolutely batshit crazy mass violence to put you know, 1968 into the shade. Last night, John Bolton, uh, Trump's former national security advisor, and he'd been working in conservative governments back, uh, well, back to the Reagan era, he said basically he's going to hold his nose and vote Democrat. Oh, really? This time, yes. That is, that um, is. Uh, I mean, you know, it's one vote, but that is really interesting because he, um, you know, I was listening to him do his book tour earlier this year, and even then he, he was going, oh, he's going to do a writing candidate. I was thinking, you pussy. You know, just, you, you, this guy is disgraceful. He is absolutely disgraceful yeah. in, in so many ways. Um, but the, the fact that, you know, he could outline the clear and present danger to that republic from Trump and then, you know, go and vote for Ronald McDonald as opposed to the only person who has a chance to knock Trump over. It's just that, you know, you, mate, you are a disgrace. Just get in the get in the bin. And yet all those people out there, his base, believe he is saving them from only the gods know what. Which brings me to this clip. This is uh, – I'd love to know what you think about this theory. This is from a self-declared prophet named uh, Jeremiah Johnson. I actually believe that COVID-19 has come to the shores of America and specifically targeted a demographic, the elderly. They're being wiped out in nursing homes. If you're elderly, oftentimes you're on a ventilator, all that stuff. I believe it's a demonic attack trying to target a group of people that very well could be anointed by God himself to help Trump get reelected. Now, that sort of thing is not uncommon, is it? Not over there, though. No, it's not. It's uh, it's. It's such a, like, it's a world unto itself. I remember when I was in primary school, like, way, way back, uh, and I remember one of my teachers who'd been to the US, and this is a long time ago, this is 25, 30 years back. And if it was primary school, it's more than 30 years back, mate. Is it? Mate. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, it was a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But he was just talking about how huge the US is or you know it was whatever and and it is it it, it is absolutely massive and, and so you can you know it, it it is large enough to 
its ecosystem, its sort of political and cultural ecosystem, is big enough to create a vast sort of sub-ecology of niches and micro-environments where, you know, whack jobs like that can make a pretty good grift out of their insanity. And, you know, and some of them are genuinely, you know, unplugged from reality and just, you know, bonkers. And some of them are just grifters. Um, but there is, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, the, the Republican Party has become a, a, a cult of personality for Trump is that it pays because it's, it is just such a, a huge, sprawling mess of a country that you can, you know, monetize pretty much any craziness. But you could go, you could take that guy there, you get back into, you know, if you read like Stephen King's work from the, the 1970s uh, yeah, and his characters are, you know, driving through the, the, the Midwest late at night and they're about to pull into the small town from which they will never, ever escape, literally. Uh, they, they always, they're always twiddling the dials on the radio and there's, there is always somebody like that on the dial because there is always somebody like that somewhere in America with that, that kind of craziness. You explored some of those themes in your recent audiobook series for Audible. Uh, Zero Day Code, the first. There's a, um, is there a general name for this trilogy? I think they call it the End of Days trilogy. Yes. Um, but, but most people just, they end up calling it the Zero Day novels. Yeah. So for those who haven't listened to it yet and, and like, quite frankly do, uh, they're great. Fun if the end of yeah, civilization is weird, fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but but it is, and I mean, through several of your you know, book series, this has been a thing you've explored. In this uh, particular scenario, it's hacking and other things that completely destroy the supply chains in the United States and shut down communications and so on. But we've seen. Similar supply chain mm. uh, disruption, certainly not on that scale, but COVID-19 has done that. In Australia, it manifested itself in toilet paper and hand sanitizer uh, and other things. Looking now at the reality, uh, compared to your, I must say, what must have been a, like quite a well-researched uh, series about the collapse of society and the rise of militias, given that central authority had you know, collapsed. Mm. How do you view that now? Or are you ashamed? You you started this. No, no, I, I made a lot of money out of that series. I'm not ashamed at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I look that that I am. I, I it's I'm it's just, it's, I'm actually writing the, the 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 final boss battle of the final book yes. this week. I'm, I'm hoping to wrap it up by Friday. And uh, oh, good because I'm looking forward to uh, Rupert de Gus's uh, reading. Oh, of I see, he's so good. Um, he's so oh, very very good. Mate, um, he's sex on a stick. Yeah, I, and I don't care what he looks like. Right, it's just his yeah, voice. He, he is really really good. Um, the, the one of the great things about you know, taking I suppose it's been about like eighteen months before to to get through these three books. Uh, so, so the last one obviously has been written mostly during the plague, and I've been able to watch a couple of predictions play out. I was actually talking to a, a fellow author in the US the other day who was he, he'd gone into his local Walmart, you know, wearing his mask, and uh, he he'd taken photos of 
empty shelves, like, you know, East German-style empty shelves at Walmart, which to the American psyche is a, 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 a grave, profane <laughs> violation. There, there should yeah, be how can you not have space. things to buy? And he was just saying, he said, it, it is the... Um, it, it's that just-in-time supply chain choke point that you wrote about in, in Zero Day. It's actually – it has happened. Um, and so, in some ways, it's, you know, it's gratifying that the research was uh, uh, played out. It's kind of terrifying that the research played out pretty much as I, I thought it would. Um, but uh, if, there's a, if there's a sort of – if for me, anyway, a darkly amusing aspect to it was the stuff I missed. So, um, in the final book, in one of the early scenes, you know, my, my 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 main villain, my big bad, rolls into this town with his militia who call themselves the Legion of Freedom, and um, oh, he's he's got the like the townspeople of Three Forks, Montana, all gathered in the local baseball diamond. And this guy is a very a very Trumpy and sort of showman. He's an entertainer in many ways. And um, in fact, it, it, in the you might recall at the start of the series, he has a very popular podcast. <laughs> oh, that guy! Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Guy. yeah, that yeah well, guy. he's yeah he he he's now got his own you know sort of minor sort of Roman Empire in what the Americans call the redoubt in the Western States. and uh, That so guy is a fuckwit, can I just say? Yeah, no, he is. He, in fact, oh, it was, it was very funny. The, in the, when, we were, when we were doing the, the edit for the second book, uh, Alex, who edited the first one, he, he was committed to something else. He couldn't do the, the edit for the second one. And so the, the guy who edited the book came to it cold. And he, <laughs> he came back to me and said, um, this character you've written, he's terrible. <laughs> he's, he's, he's quite the biggest. And I think you really need to tone him down. It's, it's, mate, it's, he's supposed it's like, to no, be. No, 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 that's um, him. But yeah, he gives this speech at the start where he, he rolls into this town. And they can see they've basically been taken over by this militia. Um, and not very happy. But he opens the back of a truck and it's full of toilet paper. And everyone <laughs> cheers. <laughs> Because I know, right? Who would have thought? <laughs> now, I wouldn't have written that scene if it wasn't for Miss Rona. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with John Birmingham. I know I am. I uh, just want to interrupt it, though, to remind you that this is the first of several spring special episodes, one a week for the next few weeks, uh, with guest co-hosts. Uh, now, next week, space archaeologist Dr Alice Gorman, uh, and then in the weeks after that, in no uh, fixed order yet, uh, Fiona Patton, MLC, uh, from Melbourne uh, and leader of the Reason Party. Uh, Dr. Upali Devasekra, who you will remember is a science computer and nanotechnologist and dinosaur evangelist, uh, and also Doctor uh, Doctor Father Carl Sinclair, uh, who is now a local priest in uh, the central west of New South Wales. Some interesting conversations will come up there. Now, as always, 
These podcasts are made possible by you, the generous listeners. And this episode, it's thanks to Attain Consultants, Bob Ogden, again, Jeffrey Peters, Paris Lord, Peter Leverding yet again, Peter Sanderlands, Robin Parker, uh, Roger Crawford, and three people who wish to remain anonymous. Thank you very much. If you'd like to join them, and obviously you've got a lot on your plate now with the corona times and the downturn in the economy, uh, but, uh, you know, deal with your own people first. But if you would like to join these people in supporting this podcast and my other terrible endeavours online, please go to stillgarian.com slash tip. That's stillgarian.com slash tip or... If you subscribe at skank.com.au slash subscribe, you might be able to get yourself some trigger words or conversation topics or other such things to insert you know, into the podcasts themselves. So that's skank.com.au slash subscribe. Don't stress all these uh, pages are cross-linked. Uh, but if you'd like to put some space-related trigger words or conversation topics into next week's conversation with Dr. Alice Gorman, you will need to get them to me. Subscribe first, obviously, if you haven't already done so, and then get them to me by midday Australian Eastern Standard Time next Tuesday, the 8th of September, Tuesday 8th of September. Anyway, we're going to go back to Mr. Birmingham and things do get a bit lighter on as we continue through the podcast. Thank you. John Birmingham, I don't know whether you know Edward Burke in Melbourne, but he's 19 years old and mm. says things like this. What I like about Donald Trump are, are not the controversial comments, of course, but really the core policies and the core beliefs he holds and what he stands for and what he represents in a new political system that I think is going to sweep across the world. And really, you know, it's a, it's a big change in, in world history at this time. Now that clip is obviously from Sky News. Mm. I mean, who is, else is this would the run kid that? who looks like the toilet brush with the the Mister uh, Potato ears on it? Um, yes, and I I really want to not have a go at him because he looks. Uh, I know. I just I don't know uh, anything odd. about him other than that he's you know he's a striking character and he's he's got this thing, this Trump thing. So people yeah, are worked look, up over him, are they? Yeah. Look, he. Um, he first came to uh, the media's attention four years ago when he was 15 years old uh, and Vice Media, uh, of course, uh, ran this whole thing where he's touring Melbourne with his mother who drives him around oh, so he fantastic. can then spout right-wing uh, stuff. He's, he's sort of like, like Caleb Bond but without the class or something. Yeah. Not that Caleb Bond has class, but Caleb Bond at least presents well, right? He, so, so why is... Why is he a thing now? Uh, because he's got thou tens of thousands of followers. He's behind a thing okay. called Victoria Forward, which is a Facebook group. Ah, uh, yeah, so this and is, he's yeah, okay. driving this is the, dissent the, the about Andrews Jihad or the anti-Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews. Yeah, he's yeah, doing yeah. this thing. Okay, he's, got him he's now. He's a yep. student at Oxford now or has been. Oh, good for and, him. And he wants – yeah, well, good. You know, if you want to learn right-wing politics, go to Oxford, right? You'll get a damn good education at a price. But he obviously sees himself as this next generation of 
far-right conservative politicians with ears. Yeah. I mean, I just uh, – I I listened to the clip you did at the start and you said, well, you know, I don't like the mean tweets, but I do like the policies and I I do like the, you know, whatever. I just – one of the things that annoys me about journalists when they they raise these these grifters and chances to prominence is that if they just did their fucking job, it would be so easy – to reduce them to what, you know, they are in essence, which is grifters and chances. Like, you know, this kid comes out, oh, yeah, I like the policies. What policies? You know, just ask him, <laughs> yeah. what policy in particular, which which piece of legislation, which spending cut or spending initiative, you know, is – are you talking about? Because Trump doesn't have any policies. He has, you know, grievances – and hatreds and obsessions and he's you know he's surrounded by people who do have agendas and do have policies like you know Bill Barr there's a guy with policies um, so I you know it 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 just annoys me that these you know these 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 complete fucking chances become minor celebrities and. It's just they're not really worthy of it. It's just well, this is the thing. I mean, sorry, I, I interrupted because I was just looking back to find a tweet I did from what John Bolton said last night, and he said of Trump, "quote He doesn't have a philosophy. Let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. Policy thinking. He doesn't do it." And Bolton's line was that Trump's decision making is quote anecdotal and episodic. Mm. Tell him something on Tuesday that agree that he agrees with doesn't mean he'll still agree with it on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's if you, as I said, I don't know much about this kid other than that you know he appears in my timeline every now and then, and he's you know to put it kindly, he's a striking looking individual. So you notice he him has a, he has a look certainly. He he does. Uh, but it's not telegenic. He just I think strikes me as use, yet yeah. another fucking grifter. You know, there's a lot of them, uh, you know, mostly on the right because, to be honest, that's where the money is. There's not a huge amount of money to be made grifting the left. Um, and, and look, to be honest as well, <laughs> once the sort of the wall fell and the whole capital versus labour thing was sublimed into a – you know, a, a, a culture war myth instead. Um, you did get this weird breaking down of the lines. If you look at a guy like Peter Evans, for instance, the am I getting that right? Is that the, the crazy chef? Yeah. yeah, he's just you know he's two or three Instagram posts away from making his QAnon pledge. Um, no, 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 no. He he is already tweeting Q- QAnon stuff straight oh, he's, out. He's there already. Oh, good. Oh, good. Good to know. Yeah, he's there um, already. So, yeah. it happens quickly. But if you look at the content of his, uh, you know, his nuttiness, it's if you sort of project that back in time, it's all sort of you know, it's a kind of rubbish you would have picked up in the you know vastly amusing. Um, classified adverts in Simply Living, which was this <laughs> magazine I, I worked on for five minutes in the 1980s. It was this kind of hippie, you know, lentil culture 
uh, abomination. And the phrase know, I use is "rainbow crystal dolphin." Yeah, crap. yeah, and that you know that 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 weird, <laughs> you know, that was sort a of really successful fluorescent. Magazine yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was the guys who. It was Tillman. It was the guys who did uh, Rolling Stone. Um, in fact, it made more money than Rolling Stone. But uh, all of that rubbish uh, that you know that we 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 used to go on with there. Um, that's the kind of rubbish that you know. Someone like Evans has has eventually picked up and 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 run with twenty or thirty years later on, and yet it's sort of moved from the left because you know simply living was very much a you know what we would now think of culturally at least as a, a left wing magazine, and and now that stuff is also sitting over on the right, and that's that's the sort of the. I don't know that it's an unwritten story because people have been writing this story for ages, but I, I haven't yet seen a sort of a unified theory of the fields of like how all of this happened, like how everything broke down and how everything got atomized and how, you know, a a crackpot, a right-wing crackpot like Evans can end up getting into his right-wing crackpottery through ostensibly left-wing pursuits. Now, the problem if you do that you're in pinboard with photographs and a lot of red string territory. Yeah. To map the rabbit hole, you have to go down the rabbit hole, and that's the danger. Yeah, that's right. And in the end, it's, it is it is just about money. Um, there is a, you know, I, I, I like the theory that, you know, one, one of the sort of explanations of our, our, our current um, political and, and cultural moment is that rich people don't want to pay tax. And so, well, who wants to pay tax? Well, no Poor one wants to pay, want tax, to pay tax, but rich people have the means to not pay tax, and that is to get governments elected who will, you know, pass laws to um, to protect their ill-gotten gains. The problem with that is to get a government elected, even in a place like the US with with voluntary voting. Well, most places, you know, have voluntary voting. Those that have it, um, you need basically you need to get poor people to vote against their economic interests. So it's, it's not in the interests of a working-class white male to vote for the Republican Party or the Liberal Party here or the Conservative Party in the US. Look, to be honest, it's really not in their fucking interest to vote for the Labor Party either. But um, <laughs> True story. But you've, st- you've got to get them to vote for, you know, for Rupert Murdoch to have his yachts and be left in peace to you know, enjoy his you know final moments with Jerry Hall, without having to answer inconvenient questions from the ATO. Uh, he needs governments that will look after him, but he needs people to vote for those governments who you know re- really shouldn't be doing it. And so he's got to give them something else. And this is the whole fucking story of the world since 1989: is a bunch of you know, rich cunts convincing a bunch of poor idiots to vote against their interests. And, you know, one of the ways they do it is is via culture war. And that's why I say there's more money on the right in the culture war than there is on the left. And to get back to your original point about this, this kid, um, he's just another grifter and he knows where the money is and he's chasing it. So, you know, good luck to him, I guess. He'll probably make out all right.
That is the music from a TV program called Cobra Kai. John Birmingham, you wanted to talk about this. Oh, I do. Oh, my God. I have an unnatural <laughs> physical love for this television series. <laughs> I, um, it is... Uh, it's based. It's, it's not even based on. It is. It's a continuation, I guess. Not even a reboot. It is. Um, it picks up the story of uh, the Karate Kid, uh, the original Karate Kid, with um, uh, you know Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the guy, the villain, the, the young blonde kid who's. <clears throat> um, I will insert that here with a. The character is John Kreese, K-R-E-E-S-E, and the actor is Martin Cove, K-O-V-E. Beep. Okay, we've heard that. All right, so uh, what this – it was originally um, – the series originally grew out of uh, YouTube's ill-fated toe-dipping exercise into the streaming wars. You know, everybody was getting their streaming service, particularly all of the big tech companies. And so YouTube decided they were going to get some some streaming stuff as well, and that would, you know, make Is this people... called YouTube Red? Yeah, I think it was Red originally. It's, it's you know, morphed into something else since, but it originally it was supposed to be on YouTube Red. And so they, you know, they're looking for content, and they, they go, whoever owns the IP for... Um, the Karate Kid, obviously, they've, they've gone to that production house, or that production house more likely has gone to them and um, pitched the idea of catching up with the characters from the Karate Kid movie, you know, 30, 40 years so later on. So, it's a on. kind of, yeah, it's, a, it's okay, the kid is now growing up. Yeah, That's yeah. So, so right. in, in the original, I'm sure most people know the original story. You know, Ralph Macchio is the sort of, you know, the dorky kid with no friends who comes from you know, Newark, New Jersey, and he ends up in uh, somewhere in LA. Um, it's in the valley in LA, so it's in Encino or Encino or Reseda or somewhere like that. And he, you know, he meets a girl, falls for the girl. The girl was going out with this, you know, karate head, blonde, pretty boy who's really bad because the guy who runs his karate club is really bad. And it's 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 a great little this is a, 1980s this is movie. like all the tropes. Yeah, it's standard yeah, yeah, yeah. Tropes it's, just, it's, it's a yeah. great teenage romance that uh, for some reason just really, you know, hit a cultural hotspot in 84 85 when it was released to the point where it was it was rebooted sometime in the last 5 or 6 years um and um oh, who who did it Jada no, Will Smith I think Will Smith um remade it but with one of his kids playing you know the role of the karate kid except it was in China or Hong Kong so it wasn't karate it was kung fu and that was never quite explained but um so the, the producers have gone to YouTube and they said, well, how about we catch up with these characters? And, and you know you know what, YouTube, Google, Alphabet, whatever, are like, oh, yeah, sure, here's, you know, here's way too much money. <laughs> Go away. And, oh, my God, they have just done the most amazing job at this thing. So what, what they – one of the first things they did was they got the original actors. So, uh, you know, uh, Ralph – Macchio, Ralph Macchio, who um, plays Danny LaRusso, who's like the hero kid in the uh, in the movie, he comes back and plays himself, plays you know Danny LaRusso as a you know a guy in his early forties, I guess, and um, 
the guy who played Johnny Lawrence, who was, you know, the blonde pretty boy, you know, bad karate guy, he comes back. And the really smart thing they've done is they sort of flipped their roles, which is not to say that Danny LaRusso is the villain of the series because he's really not. But in the series, he's a very successful man. And in fact, the reason he's so successful is that he, you know, he triumphs at the end of the movie. He beats the villains, he beats the bullies, he wins the tournament, he gets the girl, and his whole life basically arcs off in a very different direction because of that. And so we, we we catch up with him. He's this very successful LA businessman. He runs a luxury car dealership and he's got this really cheesy set of adverts, which all hark back to the fact that he won this karate competition back in 1984. And it's like, you know, at LaRusso Motors, we kick the competition and and so, you know, that's that's fine. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got really great kids, big house. And then you, you check in with uh, Johnny Lawrence, who was the bad guy in the movie. Uh, oh, my God. He, you know, he's living in he, – he's like a bit player in a Quentin Tarantino Pulp Fiction universe. And he's – his life is crap. His – everything has gone wrong for him because he made bad choices in the movie and so the series basically in the way that it, it, I, I had someone once tell me that uh, um uh was it uh television asks questions and 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 movies answer them so that movie in 84 that that answered certain questions about you know how you should live an honourable life, how you should deal with bullies. And I answer questions about courage. The TV series just then turns around and asks a whole bunch more deeper questions, much, much more difficult questions. And I, I've just, I've been binging. I don't binge television. I, I actually rarely watch it. I, I like it. I enjoy it. I've done some screenwriting in the last couple of years. So I have a, a probably a deeper appreciation for it than I, I used to. But I just sit there shaking my head in awe and wonder at the job the producers and the writers of Cobra Kai have done. Because, as I said, they've taken these characters, they have almost inverted them, and they just they ask a series of really fascinating, difficult, challenging questions about the nature of character and consequence and I just, I, I just, I find myself just shaking my head and going, "Oh my god, I love this!" Stuff. I had to, I had to, uh, I, I gave myself a migraine with it last night. I, I sat up until How? about, uh, I was up until about, I don't know, eleven thirty or something. Just you know, episode after, I just, I couldn't stop. I could not stop watching. I finally, just, oh god, got to go to bed because I had to get up at five and and go to the gym. And I woke up and I just, I, I got to bed. I couldn't, I could not get to sleep. I was so hyped up because it's just, it's so well made. Like, I, you know, I know a bit about cliffhangers. I know how to, you know, how to build a cliffhanger. These huh, guys, yeah. they know their cliffhangers. And so I went to bed and I was just, I, I was amped. I, I couldn't get to sleep for about an hour and a half. And I kept, I'm just thinking, oh, just one more episode. And, and anyway, at four o'clock. Maybe four thirty, I sort of I'm lying there awake in bed, and I start getting the pixelation that you get at the start. I'm like, ah, oh, no, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, you know, I've I've lost half this day 
because of it. But I'm going to go back. I'm going to binge some more tonight, I reckon, because uh, it is it is a magnificent piece of pop art. You know, it, it's not you know the the film version of literature or anything like that. It's uh, it's it's not it's not the wire, but it's in its own way, it's magnificent. And I, I haven't enjoyed a televised, you know, narrative as much as I have enjoyed this one in years. It's funny, I mentioned it on, on the Twitters over the weekend and instantly I, I had about 15 or 20 people and they, it, the, they all had the hook in them. They couldn't, they couldn't stop either. <laughs> and that's the test of something that has wide appeal, isn't it? That a whole bunch of people just volunteer that it's so good. Cobra Kai, K-A... Right, look, I will, I will check that out. What do you think the wife's cooking today, Huey? Oh, I don't think I know. Chicken soup, because we had chicken yesterday. Huey doesn't know his wife uses Nor stock cubes. Boiling water over a Nor ham stock cube gives a delicious meaty-tasting base for lentils and peas. This'll be the chicken soup there. No, Huey. This'll be the pea and ham. Mmm. Pea and ham. How was your soup last night, Huey? Oh, delicious. And the remarkable thing was it wasn't a chicken, it was pea and ham. Pea and ham. From a chicken. Now that's clever. No stock cubes. Good soup and no bones about it. Pea and ham soup. Mmm, I had some pea and ham soup today. I had some pea and ham yeah. soup last night. As well, because I made yeah. pea and ham soup. I love pea it. and ham soup. Mm. Why? Uh, because it under promises and over delivers. It's very very simple soup. Uh, when I decided it's I was going to have some pea and ham soup in my life, yeah, I went to the shop. I purchased one ham hock, one bag of split peas. I already had an onion in the house because I'm a civilized man. And One a bay has leaf onions, yeah. Because I am perverse, and so you know, the, the, the bay leaf is basically, you know, it is the bullshit ingredient in everything. There's no reason to put it in there. You, just, <laughs> you put it in there, but um, so I put in, you know, I put my split peas into my slow cooker. I put my uh, my ham in there, grinding of pepper, you know, the bullshit bay leaf, and uh, I don't chop the onion up. I just you know skin it and pop it in, and then I pull it out later on so you don't have the onion bits in there you just have it's purple onion too so it's a little a little sweeter than the the brown onion just put that on okay so let's oh, go, sorry go on yeah put that on at like nine o'clock in the morning and it's on a low heat all day nothing to do you know maybe once or twice i'll come up and stir it because i'm curious about what's going on and why i put that fucking bay leaf in there and then at six <laughs> All the meat's fallen off the bone. I take the skin out. I throw it to the dog. Dog doesn't deserve it because she ripped every, you know, piece of cartilage in my body the other day, but she got the skin. Wait, 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 wait. Go, whoa, whoa. What did your dog do? Uh, I went to, you know, they they go for a walk. They said, "Take take the dog for a walk. She'll love it. Yeah, sure, fine. So, you know, I take the dog for a walk. I go down to the green juice shop down the hill. Because I, I, I was doing very well at the start of uh, Miss Rona's dread reign. I was uh, I was lifting weights. Mm-hmm. I was doing my cardio at home. I was actually dropping weights, stacking on muscle. I was, you know, 
between you and me, I was I was pretty I was ripped. And then I got onto the deadline for the last of the zero day books, and it's all it's all turned to custard, what well, literally. And um, so anyway, just this has got to stop. It's going to stop, and I'm gonna, it's going to stop today. So I put the dog on the lead. I walked down the hill to Gnarly Hill. Juice shops. I about, remember that hill. It is a gnarly yeah, hill. It is. So I walk down the gnarly hill. Juice shops about a kilometre or so away. I get down there. I have my, you know, order my juice. Socially distance. You know, I use the sort mm-hmm. of the magic waving technology. I'm standing outside. There's not many people around. It's the middle of the day. Not many cars. No dogs to chase. I'm just standing there. Dogs are standing there. I'm waiting for my juice. And then she just explodes out of the traps. Just, just takes off at like warp factor eight. And twists me through 120 degrees, rips everything up one side. I just almost breaks my fingers. I'm very have a lot of residual strength from my early pandemic weightlifting, though. So I managed to to just stop her with, you know, the sort of the, the sh- shattered remnants of my body and my strength, and then I'll, I'll limp back home. But even having done that. I, I still let her have the skin off the ham bone the next night because, you know, that's that's just how I am. I don't hold the grudge. Well, I'm glad you've survived that. But to go back to the, the recipe, mm. um, our list of ingredients again is... Yeah, okay. So, you get your, you get your split peas, your green split peas. Don't, don't be suckered into, you know, one of those bags full of soup. Make sure you get a soup out of it, but it, it'll, it'll look like wet sand. And it just, you know, you can't have that. A, a PM soup is green. It's it's like almost the defining characteristic of it. So green split peas into the slow cooker. Um, then your ham hock, got to be a good ham hock. And uh, then a grinding of pepper, maybe two. You, you'd be pushing it if you did three. And then I I use the, the, the purple onion and I don't chop them up. I just take the outer skin off. I put the onion in and that way the sweetness of the purple onion um, invests in the the dish, and you can pull it out later on, throw it away, and then you you know the bay leaf because I don't know I, I don't know why we do that, but we do, and uh, that's it. No salt. Do not add salt to your uh, to your pan ham soup. You will you will regret it uh, because there's a lot of salt in the the ham, and if you're some kind of animal. Or you, you have a you know some some sort of terrible disease and you you need more salt. Sure, you can just add it later after it's been cooked. Do not add salt to the soup. Pepper is fine, and the bay leaf is a mystery, but I've been told to do it, so in it goes. Um, and then it's just you've got this fantastic meal. It's just it's just beautiful. And like you know, there's there's a price to be paid later on in you know farts, but. Um, You've got a fantastic meal the first night. Have it with some crusty bread, a bit of toast, you know, some some nice French butter or whatever, and then you get the best of all. You get you got the next day leftovers. I love leftovers so much that my sort of fantasy is to open a restaurant that's just called leftovers. It's nothing but leftovers. This is a. High energy pig. Um, all right, Gertrude, thanks for coming out. Um, so, what you're the, the beeps you're hearing are real time signals from the neural link in Gertrude's head. Gertrude, the cyber pig. 
from mm. Elon Musk. For those who haven't caught up with this, uh, Mr. Musk, famous uh, for SpaceX and Tesla and, and things, last week unveiled a pig with a computer chip in its brain, uh, which he described as a Fitbit for your skull. Um, Gertrude was the happy and healthy pig after two months having the the brain implant. Uh, and as we heard, there were neurons firing in real time, allegedly. Apparently, there's another pig, Dorothy, who Musk says had the implant and then later had the implant removed. And Musk said what Dorothy illustrates is that you can put the Neuralink, I can, that should have a TM on it, I'm sure, uh, and then you can remove it and the pig will be healthy, happy, and indistinguishable from a normal pig. John Birmingham, should we be doing this? Should Elon Musk be doing this? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, do you know why he's doing it? He has a reason besides, you know, turning a quid, which he's not doing out of Neuralink at the moment. Because he thinks he's master of the universe? No, no. He's worried about a, 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 a sort of um, – he's worried about a robot computer apocalypse. Oh, that's right. So he's, he's, he's convinced that AI will kill us all. And who's to say he's not, you know – completely nuts um certainly not peter evans but, uh, it, what musk has decided <laughs> sorry just quietly there's a comparison elon musk v pete evans <laughs> so anyway as i understand it i i i, I read a forty thousand word essay on this once god help me um oh god the reason that he is like the reason he's building spaceships is because he wants to you know create a path off the planet because he thinks we're doomed. The reason he's doing Neuralink is that he wants to build up humanity's defences against AI because he thinks we're doomed. He thinks eventually it's, you know, um, Terminator style, it will it will turn on us. And his, uh, his sort of strategic response to the emergence of AI is to create a much greater, I guess, bionic or organic intelligence by linking together the hive mind of humanity. And that's effectively what um, he's trying to do with Neuralink. And if you you look at the, the business plan for Neuralink, it actually resembles in many ways the business plan for Tesla, which was to, you know, start with the simple achievable technologies and and sort of build out and and build down into more complexity from there should he be doing this yeah sure why not i mean the, the bigger question is <laughs> sure let's have a cyber pig why not as someone said on twitter the other day they said why would you want a remote control pig and i thought why wouldn't you yeah, right? exactly it's <laughs> um the, the bigger question is, you know, would you stick it in your own head? Uh, now, if you know anything Fuck about no. um, Elon's fan base, there are hundreds <laughs> of thousands, possibly a couple of million people out there who are already like scrambling at the doors at the, the, the electrified fence of Neuralink. Let us in. Implant me, Elon. Well, I, Implant well, me. Well, I saw that. 
Because one of his plans was you could use your Neuralink to like summon a Tesla or play video <laughs> games. And it's like, sure, I'll just think that I need a car and an Uber will turn up. It's like, yeah, sometimes I dream. And let me just say the things I think I need in a dream are often wildly inappropriate. Hmm. Because that's what dreams are. And the last thing I need is at 3 o'clock in the morning is 14 Ubers to turn up <laughs> and, and a remote-controlled pig. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's uh, – it, it's, I, I, I asked this question on a, a, another podcast a while ago. I forget which one. I think it was, uh, I think it was Clockwise. And they, they, they throw open – like once a year, they throw open to the um, – you know, the listeners, give us a question for the, the panel. And so us, my, yeah. my panel back then, which is actually relevant to this question, so, you know, it's, it's 25, just quietly, 30 years. Um, if anyone wants a question for the panel here, uh, just go to skank.com.au slash subscribe and you'll see a whole bunch of ways you can pay money to, like, throw a topic into the podcast. Anyway, oh. you were saying. Um, yeah, so, so let's just imagine it's, uh, it's, you know, 30, 40 years in the future. And um, you know, Neuralink has 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 happened, and it's been you know Sherlocked by Apple and bought by Facebook and copied by Google. And so you've got you know we haven't mentioned Huawei in this yet either. Yeah, yeah, there's right. Huawei as well. Yeah, Huawei's Huawei's got it, it its own, and Samsung, of course, which looks very similar to the Apple one. And um, yeah, so you know. What you know? Question one: Are you going to put this thing in your head? And two: If so, which one? You know, which, which company are you going to <laughs> oh, allow wow. to invade your your neural system? Wow! <sighs> I think that's a perfect point at which to end our conversation. Because, like, would you let Tim Cook? into your brain? I mean, you already do in some ways. Tim pays a lot of rent in my brain. Uh, I think about him so much. Um, but, look, to be honest, uh, I think I probably, you know, I'd probably just, I, I'd go the the Apple neural mesh, be a bit more expensive. But when it failed catastrophically, I could always get a new one at the Genius Bar. <laughs> Beautiful work. John Birmingham, thank you so much for spending time with me this evening. Cheers, mate. The kids will love it. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That's the edict for now. Next episode is with space archaeologist Dr. Alice Gorman. So get your trigger words and topics in by Tuesday. All the links for this episode are at the 9pmedict.com. Until next time, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm edict is a skank media production. Sorry.